Well, we're, uh, we're pushing our way through these uh, difficult chapters, chapters uh, that are full of judgment uh, in chapters 15, 16, 17 and 18. Uh, but there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. As I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, God brings judgment, but judgment is never his final word. And we'll, when we finally come to chapter 19... Uh, we will see the the glories of uh, Jesus, the rider on the white horse, coming uh, to collect his bride, the new Jerusalem, and uh, it will be wonderful to see that. But we need to we need to hear these strong words of judgment uh, first before we see uh, the glory of the new creation. Last week we saw the scene being set for the pouring out of. These bowls, uh, they're all familiar theme that we've been seeing over and over again in Revelation of God's people in God's house. They were next to the sea of glass before his throne singing his praises. As I said, I've said before, this is one of the central key themes of the book of Revelation, the security of God's people in the midst of all of the persecution and the suffering of this world as God's judgments are being poured out. Remember the phrase back in 14 verse 4, it is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The title of our our series in Revelation, wherever the Lamb is, we are there with him. Wherever we are, He is there with us. He doesn't follow us. He doesn't turn up at some point after we've been through difficulty and start to try and make things good again. No, we follow him. He goes before us and brings us with him. There's nothing that we will face in life in which Jesus is not already there ensuring that whatever the situation is, it will be something that God is working together for our good and for his glory. He's the good shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley that he has already walked through himself on his way to Calvary and the tomb and right through to the resurrection. We saw that our true location, regardless of where we are geographically, is in Christ, seated with him in the embrace of the Father and there is nowhere more secure than to be in the Father's house. So now as we prepare to see these final judgments of the bowls, we need to keep in, in our minds this image of the throne of the Father that's always been there above and over uh, everything so far and the Lamb who was slain, who was seated with his Father on the throne but he's also before the throne because he's there with us as the Son of Man. And one thing that we should see in these uh, seven bowls of judgment that's unlike the seven seals 
and the seven trumpets, in which those first two lots of seven Christ's people are suffering in the midst of the judgments. But here, God's people are completely removed. We're exempt from these judgments because they no longer apply to us anymore. We've already been there when we were brought to the foot of the cross where the punishment that we deserve for our sin was poured out in full on Jesus. So in these final judgments, we are not participants. We're observers. We're not gloating over the death of the wicked, but we're rejoicing in the perfect justice of our God. Now in this vision, the agents agents of God's wrath are seven angels. Now we've already seen a group of seven angels, remember, with the trumpets. I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Maybe uh, these are the same angels. Not just because there's seven of them and they're coming out of the sanctuary, in other words, out from the presence of God, but also because there is a there's a direct correspondence between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. As we'll see, the, the bowls bring to completion that which was only done partially in the trumpets. The angels are clothed in pure white linen with golden sashes around their chests. This is priestly clothing. Remember, this is how we saw Jesus dressed when he first appeared to John. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, white linen was worn by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year when he was permitted to go into the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant and make atonement for the people. But as the high priest, of course, he wasn't technically going in alone. His normal priestly Dress included a breastplate that had 12 precious stones embedded in it, representing the 12 tribes. So wherever he went, he carried the whole nation with him and on him. So as he went into the most holy place and stood before the throne of God, he was bringing all of God's people with him. So that now the Lord and the people were there with all of their sin, all of their impurities, the animal had been sacrificed, the blood was there and the Lord was taking that wrath back into himself, bearing it in himself as the blood was sprinkled on his throne so that his people may be forgiven. That's how we should think when we talk about Jesus as our great 
high priest, entering into the holy place, coming before the throne of the Father, not with the blood of a bull, but with his own blood shed for us. The hymn that we sing occasionally here, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, don't let this ransomed sinner die. Now, the high priest had some specific instructions that he must follow before he went into the holy place with this blood. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil into the holy place but not into the most holy place and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. We know from the instructions of the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings that the bowls and the instruments used for this incense were made of gold and the altar of incense in the holy place before the veil was overlaid with gold. And we saw that at the start of the seven trumpets. An angel came, stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So all of the equipment, all of the furnishings in the tabernacle were were gold, plated gold or made from pure gold. Do you remember what happened next? after the incense had been put on the golden altar. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Remember we saw the connection between the prayers of the saints and the working of God in judgment as he answered their prayers. The activity that was taking place in the sanctuary was taken out so that it then had a bearing on the earth. Well, a similar thing is happening here. As the angels carrying the golden bowls come out of the sanctuary and get ready to pour them on the earth. But here though the smoke of the incense speaks of more than the prayers of the saints. As we saw in that passage from Leviticus, the high priest was to make sure that the sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the incense so that he wouldn't see the glory of the Lord and die as a result. This cloud of smoke spoke of the glory of God, veiled in smoke and darkness that Israel experienced At Mount Sinai, this cloud came down on the mountain and prevented anyone from going up and seeing the Lord face to face, except, of course, for 
those who were summoned, Moses, Aaron, the priests and the elders, who went into the cloud of glory and saw the Lord and ate with him in his presence. Then, once the tabernacle had been completed, the cloud of glory went from the mountain to the tabernacle. The sanctuary was filled with smoke. That's not the one. There, here. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Years later, when Solomon had finished building the temple in Jerusalem and he prayed and he dedicated it, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. We've seen a pattern here, aren't we? Generations later, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision in which he saw the glory of God in the temple. But this time God was seated on a chariot, the famous vision of uh, the God on his chariot with the, the four living creatures and the wheels within wheels. Ezekiel said, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. He goes on a bit later. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And then he says a bit later, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So in Ezekiel's vision, the glory of the Lord that was in his temple was on a chariot because he was on the move. He was leaving Jerusalem. He was handing it over to be destroyed at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. His glory departed from Jerusalem and from the land of Judah and instead went to be with the exiles in captivity in Babylon until the time would come for him to return and bring them back with him. Some exiles did return 70 years later. They rebuilt the city and the temple. And as they built, the prophet Haggai spoke to them of the future. He said, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house 
with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Can you see the the gospel fulfilment of the promises to Abraham here? People from all nations being brought in as treasures into God's house to beautify his house so that the latter glory is greater than the former glory. In other words, God's glory is going to be made known at some time in the future that will far exceed all of those times when God's glory filled the mountain and the tabernacle and the temple. This is the glory of God that has been made known to us in Jesus. In him we see God's glory shine in a way that far surpasses anything that has come before. I think God still occasionally does this, where he makes his glory known in a special way in his dwelling place, which is no longer a building, but is his people. Uh, We call it revival, when his glory is is made tangible and manifest amongst his people and uh, we see who he is in in a new and a deeper way and we are emboldened and encouraged and empowered to proclaim his excellencies to the world around us. Well, did you imagine that there would be so much biblical background in just those few verses? All of it helps us understand this picture that's being painted here. God's treasured people, the treasures, are in the sanctuary, brought in, secured by the atoning blood of Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus has now dedicated us as this new heavenly temple, fit to be God's dwelling place. And so the cloud of his glory now comes to rest upon his new covenant people. And at the same time, these angels who are role-playing, we could say, as priests, they bring the golden bowls out of this smoke-filled sanctuary to pour them out, not on the altar of incense inside, but on the earth outside. The message being given here is that the full glory of God is about to be revealed on the earth. It will no longer be veiled, no longer obscured or kept inside the sanctuary. No one will be able to deny him. All those who arrogantly said, I'll only believe in God if he reveals himself to me in an unmistakable way, they'll get what they've demanded. They'll see the full glory of God. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So the glory of God 
that keeps us safe in the sanctuary, in Christ, and enables us to stand before the throne. It's the same glory that will bring this final judgment upon the world. That's why our song, Before the Throne, remember, was about God's great and amazing deeds, both in salvation and in judgment. Because in the end, they're one and the same thing. It's the same God who accomplishes his salvation through judgment. If these golden bowls uh, speak of the prayers of the saints, then it's the prayer that we prayed earlier in this service. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray those words in the Lord's Prayer, do we really think about the implications of what we're asking? What would it actually look like for the Father's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? That's a prayer for what we're seeing here for his glory to be revealed to every eye, for his full authority to be made known so that every knee will bow before him. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're actually praying for the end of the age to come and for the glorious new age of the new heavens and earth to come. So with all of that said, let's finally... Look at these bowls. As I said earlier, the bowls bring to completion what was only partial in the trumpets. The trumpets were preemptive warnings of the judgments of the bowls. And so the bowls are the completion of those warnings. So see how that which affected only a third of the realms of the earth, the sea, the rivers and the heavenly bodies in the trumpets now impacts the totality of those realms. See how there's a shift from God's judgment affecting the non-human world to directly affecting human beings. This is judgment on mankind. See, in the fifth trumpet... Satan and his armies from the bottomless pit, all under Jesus' sovereign rule, were allowed to operate but in a limited way and they brought darkness on the earth. But in the fifth bowl, they're brought to an end by being plunged into darkness themselves like the bottomless pit from which they came. In the sixth trumpet, angels came from the Euphrates River with Judgment. The nations surrounded the temple and in the midst of that, God's people were called to go out and proclaim the gospel to those nations. In the sixth bowl, we see these unclean spirits come from the Euphrates, also bringing judgment. But as we've seen, God's people remain within the temple while the judgment is being played out. In the ancient world, armies used all kinds of 
weird and wonderful strategies to defeat their enemies. In 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia wanted to invade Babylon. But the wide river Euphrates formed a barrier to his army. So he went upstream and he built a reservoir and diverted the water. The river's flow dropped down to knee height and his armies were able to, in, to cross and invade. And that was the end of the Babylonian Empire, the start of the Persian Empire. That's what's happening in verse 12. But it's the hand of God that dries up the water, just like it is in every other case in the Bible. It's the water dried up and God's people crossed over. The dried up river opens the way for the kings of the east to come. Now in popular thinking and in some uh, ways of reading Revelation, the kings gathering at Armageddon is a picture of a future war where humanity will fight against Christ at the end uh, of the time of tribulation. I don't believe that's what's being described here. Armageddon, which means literally the mountain of Megiddo, was located in the north of the Promised Land. And it was at a key junction of the routes between the north and the south and the east. So when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came from the east to take control of the region, they took the route northwest along the river Euphrates, then down from the north, following the river systems, which you would need to do if you had a great army that needed water and provisions along this journey, which would have taken some time to travel. They couldn't come directly from the east because, as you see, the Arabian desert is in between. Megiddo would be the location for them to camp, to rally together, to gather their allies that, that were there from the nations around them before sweeping south through Israel into Judah and Jerusalem, which they did in 597 BC. So I don't believe this is a picture of human beings gathering to fight against Christ, but it's an image of God's judgment coming upon Jerusalem like it did in 597 BC and like it did shortly after Revelation was written in 70 AD. God used the armies of foreign nations to judge his people. Then in the seventh trumpet, the victory of the kingdom of God in Christ was declared. Since the risen Jesus is now King of kings and Lord of lords, in the words of Psalm 110, he sits at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are made his footstool. So in the seventh bowl, this work is complete. It is done. The kingdom of the world literally falls to pieces. The creation is undone, ready to make way for the new creation, 
and the new city, the new Jerusalem. Now, something else we saw in the trumpets was that the result of these judgments coming upon the earth and upon people resulted in, through the proclamation of the gospel, many people repenting and glorifying God as a result. That was the purpose of those judgments, judgments of mercy, of the trumpet calling people to come. But in the bowls, we see that people's response is different. They cursed the name of God. They did not repent or give him glory. They cursed the God of heaven. They did not repent of their deeds. They cursed God for the plague. This is the final judgment. At this judgment, there are no second chances. We need to get out of our our minds the popular but unbiblical picture of hell as a place where Satan, dressed in red with his pointy tail and his pitchfork, is in charge and he torments all these unfortunate people who are there who wish they could leave but can't. That imagery comes from the medieval time, the writings of Dante's Inferno in the 1200s. It's often, that's the way it's portrayed in popular culture, in TV and comics or, or movies. And it's often done that way to make fun of what's thought to be traditional Christian beliefs. So that popular image tends to portray hell as full of people who don't really deserve to be there and who now that they're dead have stopped sinning. But hell isn't a place like that. Hell is a place where people remain in their hardness of heart and unrepentance which is why the wrath of God also continues because people continue in their unrepentance to deserve his wrath. There's no desire of those people to leave or to change because they're still shaking their fists in defiance against their creator. God doesn't inflict an unlimited punishment on limited sins. His punishment always fits the crime and since people's sinning will continue forever, so will his judgment on them. So strong words, but these are the words of God's final judgment where his justice is finally vindicated. Let's look at the two interjections, we could call them, uh, through these bowls, one at the third bowl and one at the sixth. And both of these are designed to bring us comfort and encouragement in the midst of this scene which might otherwise feel fearful or discouraging. Firstly, the, the song that, the two songs actually, after the third bowl in verses 5 and 7. So this is just after both the sea and the rivers have turned to blood. And the angel, probably this is the angel who's poured out the bowl, is the one who says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them 
blood to drink, it is what they deserve. This judgment is on those who have shed the blood of God's treasured people, the saints, the prophets. And what they have done is now being done to them. Just like the people in Psalm 137 cried, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. This angel's song is then answered strangely by the altar, agreeing that God's judgments are true and just. Now, have you ever heard of a speaking altar or a singing altar? Neither has the Bible. But what appears to John to be the altar saying these words is actually the voice of the people under the altar that we saw way back in chapter 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So finally, the prayers of the martyrs are answered. They have patiently waited, trusting in the goodness and the, the, the patience of God instead of trying to take matters into their own hands. To, instead of fighting for justice for themselves, they've trusted and now finally justice has come. Their God has not let them down. Jesus told us to never give up crying out to the Father for justice. That day will come. Nothing done against you because you're a follower of Jesus, goes unnoticed by him. The time will come when you will be vindicated by him. Second, we're told what to do as we anticipate this day of judgement. There in verse 15. We're to be ready, watching and waiting Jesus tells us here, as he did a number of times in his parables, that he's coming like a thief. In other words, at a time that people don't expect, without prior warning, so no one can predict the day or the hour. If you know someone is coming, but you don't know when, well, what's the wise thing to do? Well, you make sure you're ready now so that you will be ready then. In the Christchurch earthquakes a few years ago, people were out on their streets at night half naked and in their underwear because they only had seconds to jump out of their beds and run out of their houses when the earthquake hit at an hour that they didn't expect. I bet from then on all of those people went to bed fully clothed in pyjamas, knowing that they had to be prepared if another earthquake came when they didn't expect. So how are we to be prepared for Jesus' return? 
Well, we need to be clothed. We need to be clothed in his righteousness. That righteousness which he gave us freely in his death and his resurrection. We're to be prepared by making sure our faith is in him. So are you ready? Let's pray.